So it's my privilege to invite all of us, men, women, and children, um, to turn in our Bibles to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. We're going to be learning about a corporate act of faith and an individual act of faith, which are both very intriguing and compelling. It's kind of a Bible study day, um, digging in um, to the story of the walls of Jericho falling down and Rahab's faith, that unlikely believer uh, that was spared from that destruction. There's really been said there are four types of faith. Um, There's biblical faith, but uh, it's been described in this way. Biblical faith that receives coming empty-handed to Christ for salvation. A faith that reckons counting on God to make you righteous. A faith that risks daring to do the impossible. And a faith that rests in pain and suffering, having confidence that God will deliver you and take care of you. All of this is really biblical Faith. I want to focus on the aspect of faith being risky. It's risk-taking. Saving faith is living faith. James 2 says faith without works is dead. It's not alive. So if you have living faith, it's not an alone faith. True faith will always eventuate into works and fruit of the Holy Spirit. These two verses that we're going to be looking at, Hebrews 11, 30 and 31 bring us face to face with what I would call the fruit of faith. It's obedience in the form of a risk. And when we're talking about risk, we're talking about not worldly foolishness, not a leap into the dark, but a leap into the light. We risk in terms of who we know and whom we know and the one who lives in our heart. Biblical risk is... um, what I would call humble foolishness, humble foolishness or foolish weakness. We are fools for Christ. We're not all the way understood by onlookers from the world. Being a follower of Christ is really being vulnerable in a way that the world doesn't naturally make itself vulnerable It's foolish weakness. And I want to do a Bible study before we do our Hebrews 11 Bible study. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1, just to give a running start into how Paul was a fool for Christ. He used the words foolish and weakness to describe and define his ministry through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So I just want to do a sweep real quick to show you that. He considered his preaching foolish. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 20 says, where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? It says, for since the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand a sign, Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, which was totally a stumbling block to the Jews. It was folly also to the Gentiles. Verse 25 says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So you have this theme of being foolish and weak. 
Paul fought for truth through foolish weakness. 2 Corinthians 10, 1 to 10. He says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. He says, I beg you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war in the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the, of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So he's saying, listen, I'm not going to come in the flesh. I don't want to come that way. I'll write boldly in letters, but I want to just, I'm begging you, just let me come meekly in gentleness, in weakness, not propping himself up. But look how powerful God works when you are weak. Verse five, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. He's ready to punish every disobedience. Anyway, he just, he goes on and on. Look at, well, 2 Corinthians 11, five through nine, he pastored in foolish weakness. And he was being in 2 Corinthians attacked, his integrity was being attacked by people who were called the Hooper apostles. They were the super apostles. They were self-promoting leaders who were really false teachers trying to undermine Paul's ministry, trying to say he he has, he's foolish in the way he talks. He's, he's bilking money from the churches. He shouldn't be being paid. He says, I'm not the least inferior to the super apostles. Verse um, five of second Corinthians 11. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, he's being sarcastic. He says, I am not so in knowledge. Verse seven, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge. Verse eight, he's being sarcastic here. I robbed other churches. It's some humor by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you, I was in need. I did not burden anyone. There's the humility again. Macedonia su supplied my need. And then second Corinthians 12, the very next chapter, verse one, he says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man, he's talking now of himself in third person, who 14 years ago, this is, I think, hearkening back to his conversion moment at Damascus. I'm not totally certain of that. He says, who was caught up in to the third heaven, whether in body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Verse 3, I know that this man was caught up into paradise whether in body or out of body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things. He's speaking of himself. He heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. He didn't prop up his experiences coming literally either bodily or by vision. He doesn't even, can't even discern the difference between that because it was an actual vision where he's seeing the Lord and hearing from the Lord, things he can't even speak of. He says, I don't want to boast in that. I want to come in weakness. Verse six, though, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool for I would be 
speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Some people take that as physical weakness. I take it literally as the angelos or angel of Satan to harass me, which means um, demon oppression. And I think the demonic oppression came through the super apostles, those who he just mentioned, those who were attacking him, those who were stirring up conflict and controversy in the church, the doctrines of demons, undercutting apostolic ministry. It was to keep him from becoming conceited, verse 7. So three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. See, there it is again, foolish weakness, humble, vulnerable weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Where did Paul find contentment? Where did God see power in his ministry? It's when he was humble, when he was humbled, when he was willing to be weak, when he was willing to be vulnerable. For verse 10, when I am weak, then I am strong. Verse 11, I have been a fool. He's not saying that negatively, saying that's what this pressure has brought to him. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles. Here's the context again for the thorn, even though I am nothing. Well, what we're going to see looking back in the Old Testament is that this has been a theme throughout Scripture, throughout Scripture, foolish weakness, humble weakness, which brings the display of the power of God. Back to Hebrews 11, let me read verses 30 and 31 with this as a context. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now we're going to learn a little bit about this. There's a lot to learn um, looking into the Old Testament stories, but really remember the theme that I'm promoting here that I think scripture promotes is that God works through foolish weakness to bring himself glory. Verses 30 and 31 go together. One story feeding into the next, they seem swapped in terms of the chronology, but the walls fell and then retrospectively, we find out that Rahab was spared. And so that's how the author is thinking here. You have one that's speaking corporately of Israel's faith, where they in humble weakness went around and marched around the walls of Jericho, a formidable battle fortress where they're just walking, marching, parading, blowing horns and carrying a golden box as they circle this 30 minute walk around Jericho. That's humble weakness. And then you have, we're going to introduce to you Rahab, the prostitute, who is completely vulnerable in weakness and humility for what she's done, but becomes a believer, a woman of faith. We'll open both of these um, accounts to you from Scripture.
The walls of Jericho, just as a context, were massive and formidable. They were wide enough for two chariots to pass by each other, kind of like two lanes of traffic. There were, as I understand it, uh, archaeologically, the archaeology attests to kind of a two-wall dynamic where you have sort of this high wall and then you have a staggered slope with a second wall. And perhaps the second wall is where Rahab herself lived, which would have been more the poor people living on the, the most vulnerable part of the city. But these were the walls that were designed to protect the Jerichoites who were strategically located right at the mouth of the Jordan. The Jordan River is about 10, 15 miles away from Jericho. Some people just came back from Israel. They can contest me with real data. But anyway, I would say based on my study, 10 to 15 miles is designed to protect from the strongest enemy and virtually impregnable. Uh, Deuteronomy 1 verse 28, this is the first 12 spies report the 10 that came in that were unbelieving and saying, don't go into the land. What took 40 years should have taken about 40 days or less to get to the land from crossing the Red Sea to Kadesh Barnea. I think I've been told that it was a 10 day walk. I'm not sure how long it would take 2.5 million people to get there, but they wandered zigging and zagging through the wilderness because of their unbelief. And what they heard was, where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to the heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there, the sons of the Anakim. And I think Goliath is right in this giant lineage. You have giants in the land. And that was true, but it was their unbelief that kept them out. Even though this might have been exaggerated, it was their lack of faith. The first generation that had seen Passover, had, had seen the miracles, had seen the Red Sea parted, they, because of their idolatry, because of sins of complaining and, you know, worshiping the vault calf, God laid them low. He brought them down in the wilderness. And so unless you were 18 years old and younger in that context, you were not going into the promised land. It was the sons of the first generation and daughters and children, the second generation that was going in. Moses was not going in. They were going in under the leadership of Joshua. So nothing of their faith during the 40 years was mentioned um, since the Red Sea. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea, then silence, except for complaining, fiery serpents, Korah, their screams down into the earth. Now you have the second generation, and now by faith, right? Now we pick back up with people who are exercising faith in a wartime campaign. This is a battle conquest. We need to remember the Israelites, all 2.5 million of them are coming for battle. They, they crossed over Jordan following the leadership of Joshua and their, their first campaign, their first possession in Canaan is Jericho. So the water had stood up on a heap. They had seen the miracle. They were believing the water was flooding behind them. There was no turning back. They're not looking back and they're moving forward. And you don't see complaining in the story of Joshua at this point. You don't see Israel wavering. They are a ragtag multitude of sons and daughters who are sons and daughters of ex-slaves. And they're kind of part of an ex-slave group that's marching with livestock 
And they do have some trained warriors, numbering to 40,000. Joshua 4.13 talks about this, ready for war, prepared by the Lord for battle. So what they do, if you want to follow this in the Old Testament um, narrative, Joshua 2, they sent spies. They sent spies again. They, they want to do a reconnaissance mission again to find out what's going on in Jericho. Perhaps uh, the spies would have had to travel north along um, the Jordan area and go and go over um, to the fjords. They, they had not yet crossed Jordan. That miracle had not yet taken place at this point when the spies were sent. So the spies somehow were able to get, get over there and they would have had to migrate down southwest and perhaps go through some, some caves and things to hide and then try to sneak into Jericho. But Jericho was on high alert because the testimony of Israel and their march towards them had been heard. And we're going to learn about that later. They were, they were eerily warned about, about um, the Israelites. Who were these people that were coming to us? Who were these people who we've heard they defeated King Og and Bashan? I, who are these people that are coming for us? So we're on high alert at this point. And king, the king was on high alert looking perhaps for spies. And you see this, it says, uh, verse 1 of Joshua 2, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. So you have spies that are sent in. The walls were high and thick, and the exaggerations were not exaggerated. This was not a hyped up report. This is a very, very difficult opportunity. Verse Deuteronomy chapter 1, again, um, verse 29 and 30 says this, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord, your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. They, now the second generation on the cusp of going into Jericho needed to do something. They needed to believe that God was going to fight their battle for them. Do you see that? They needed to go in humble weakness uh, the Canaanites were very pagan. They were very cruel. The Jerichoites had um, the testimony of taking their infant children, their newborns, and actually putting them in jars and building them into the city walls as sacrifices. They were pagan people. The word Jericho means moon, which means they probably worshipped the moon. So Israel's conquest was really God's Judgment, and they deserved it. The military strategy that Israel was going to undergo was one from the world standpoint that would be absurd, a fool's errand, ridiculous. I mean, to try to penetrate walls in a battle strategy meant you had war engines, you had machines, you had methods. Perhaps you would surround the city and try to create a cut off food supply and do the war of attrition. And starve them out. But no, they're just going to march with shofar horns. That's what they're going to do according to what God told them to do. The army of Israel 
um, would conquer other people by force, but God was using weakness for them as they moved in. This is the plan. If you look at Joshua 6, 1 to 5, this is what they were called to do. It says, now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up everyone straight before him and says, so Joshua said, the son of Nun called the priest and said to them, take up the ark of the covenant and seven priests and bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. The ark, by the way, is mentioned no less than 11 times in this context. What we're talking about is God's presence is surrounding the city probably a 30-minute walk around the city. It's God's presence that is doing things in man's, in light of man's weakness. All they had to do was march once a day for six days, seven priests in front carrying ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, they were to march around seven times and the priest blowing the horns and the priest finally made one blast and all the people were to shout, now, I'm not exactly sure if all 2.5 million were marching or if it was the 40,000 men of war and the priest and a select um, group. It's a mob of people. It was a massive display of silent, eerie power and then horn blasts and then ultimately culminating in shouts from, I believe, everybody. So it was interesting. They probably stayed out of range of the archers. We don't know if the Jerichoites are standing on the wall mocking them or I think kind of sitting there watching, just wondering what is this ominous group doing around us? There was no record of equivocation on the Israelites part. I think I mentioned that already. We know that the Israelites were taken safely across Jordan Joshua three thirteen. when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the, jo- the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand up in one heap. That's an amazing miracle akin to the crossing of the Red Sea. They were given explicit instruction. Um, precise obedience was demanded. Joshua, and we don't have time to go in there, he met the Lord directly before this and saw the Lord, I believe it was a Christophany where Christ coming as the angel of the Lord um, met him. That's Joshua 5.13. Joshua was by Jericho, means he was right there. He lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? Listen to how God responds. And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. We're not talking about your, your army or their army. We're talking about my army, 
of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet. This is why I think it was God's presence. Just like Moses at the burning bush, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So Joshua was emboldened and this parade of fools followed Joshua's leadership in humility and in weakness, in complete vulnerability. They walked around Jericho, fools for Christ, I would say. So what were the Jerichoites doing? Were they mocking or were they melting? Well, I think actually Hebrews 1131, the second story, which is our story about the most unlikely disciple in Jericho to believe, tells us that they were melting inside. They were actually afraid. They were actually afraid of what was going to happen to them. Rahab is an unlikely candidate. This is Rahab's foolish weakness. It's point two. We have point one, now this is point two. Rahab is unlikely. She's a prostitute, a Gentile, a Canaanite, an Amorite by race. The Amorites, by the way, were doomed and marched for destruction, but not her. A lot of people will soft sell um, Rahab being a prostitute or not. She really was. The word prostitute means it literally is poor nay. It's not to be dumbed down. It's not to be underestimated. Hebrews 11.31, Rahab the prostitute, James 2.25, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Like the woman at the well, like Mary Magdalene who washed washed Jesus' feet, these are trophies of God's grace. Not a Hebrew, an Amorite. In Jericho, not sort of a, you know, kind of a believer. No, someone who was a pagan in lost immorality. This is our window into the idea, the truth, the reality that God can save anyone. He can turn the lights on inside of anyone. This is Rahab. Rahab is the last named hero of the faith in Hebrews 11. Think about it. Noah, Moses, Abraham, Sarah. These are believers. These are heroes. And then Rahab, Rahab. That's who this woman of God is. What did she do? She simply did what anyone needs to do to receive grace. She believed. She believed. And her belief is commended by what she did. Remember, faith without works is dead, but when you have living faith, it's going to produce radical, unexpected works. Literally, Hebrews eleven thirty one says, it says she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Well, literally in the original language, it says Rahab received the spies in peace. She was at peace with these Hebrew spies. And if you look at the account again in Joshua 2, these spies were were being hunted immediately when they came um, into Jericho. And they went into Rahab, Rahab's house, and lodged there. 
It's the house of a prostitute. Now, you say, why did they go there? Well, they went there because that's where foreigners would go. That's where the travelers and merchants would go. And they were going undercover. And they did it with a pure motivation, but they went there to escape being caught or being, um, you know, just caught or discovered, I should say, from the king and from his workers. The, you know, the king's police were coming and they were knocking on the door looking for them. Look at verse two. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. I mean, this is high treason. This is instant death. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you. They found out, they knew what was going on. Surely these men were in disguise, but it didn't matter that the Jerichoites, they were melting. They were freaked out by the Israelites. And so any hint of anything, any funny business was going to be discovered and they were immediately discovered. And so Rahab is putting her life on the line. She's acting in foolishness and in weakness to in any way align herself with these men. Bring them out who entered your house for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed to dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of the flax, of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. Now, this is going to get us into all kinds of ethical like discussion, right? In terms of what Rahab said and what was true or what was a lie. But the bottom line is you have to understand that this woman, this new believer was aligning herself now with the people of God in this walled city. And she was doing it in an unlikely way. The men were doomed and for her to in any way associate herself with these men would mean instant death. Now, did she lie? Did she lie? I have everybody's attention now. All the background stuff is over. Now we're, now we're in ethics class. How fun is this? Not very. All right. So, no, she actually lied three times. Did you catch that? She said, uh, you know, that she didn't know where they came from. She didn't know where they came from. She said they had gone. They had not gone. They're up on the roof. Uh, she did not know where they were. She knew exactly where, she were, where they were because she hid them. So she lied three times. It's a great strategy. If I lie, I'm going to lie again and again and again to get myself out of it, right? Well, before tackling the ethics of the action, I want to just kind of open up some of the obvious context. Rahab is a new believer. She's a brand new believer. And so one idea is to say she did wrong, but she was believing. And in her faith, she didn't know that there was a contradiction with what she was doing. It's like having faith that is salted with sin, as Kent Hughes puts it. It's like everybody. Everybody that's a new believer has a sinful hangover, theologically, a hamartiological hangover after you're a believer. There's still fog. There's still unclarity on what's right or what's wrong. But by doing this, she was, in essence, defecting. She was defecting from Jericho, and she was putting herself with 
the people of God, like Ruth, your people are my people. My people are your people. I mean, your people are my people. I am with you. So you have Joshua 2, 8 through 15, continues the story. It says, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all of the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. So she had given some thought to her belief, to her new faith. And we're going to come back to whether the lie is okay or not, or the lies are okay or not. So bear with me, but I want you to have a context that she was believing. And I think that the merchants and traders that passed through her household in the providence of God were, were unlikely evangelists. They were telling stories about the Israelites and how they had been mighty in battle in the land, in their wanderings and how scary they were. And instead of Rahab's heart melting in fear, she emboldened in faith. Her heart got stronger instead of weaker in that regard. Verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. And she is an Amorite to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Listen to that faith. Listen to her. She's strong in the Lord. In verse 12, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. In other words, save me, save my family. I know God's might is coming. Verse 13, that you will save alive my father and mother and my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. It's another important contextual markers. The spies were actually telling Rahab, don't tell on us. Now, again, Rahab is commended for her faith, not for her deception, not for her misdirection. She's commended for being a believer. Abraham, in the same way, lied. He told a half-truth, which was a whole lie, saying that Sarah, two times, he said, is my sister, implying she's not my wife, which is a lie. God hates lying. He hates lying lips, the proverb says. God's character is such that he cannot lie. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? He's truth. We're always supposed to tell the truth. The Decalogue says, you shall not commit false witness or bear false witness. We're supposed to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4 says, we're supposed to be truth tellers. We're supposed to be of the truth and not shade things. So how are we supposed to understand this situation? Well, I think it's important to understand Rahab was defecting from a pagan way of life and she was believing and she was leaving a vacuous, empty life for the Hebrew God by siding with the spies. And so this was done in... Faith, and again, I'm going to answer the question, but I'm just trying to build as much context as I can for this. What about the scarlet rope? 
What is, what is that? What, what was the rope that is mentioned in verse 15 of Joshua 2? It says, then she let down, she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you will you may go your way. The men said, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down and you shall, shall gather into your house, your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. If anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. So we're talking about the scarlet cord. Verse 21, it mentions the scarlet cord again. She tied the scarlet cord in the window. Did that fortify her house within that wall? Remember two walls, they're they're laid flat, you know, either by God's earthquake or some other supernatural way where he just lays the walls down. Did the scarlet cord do that? No, it was symbolic, symbolic. I think the scarlet cord is very similar to the blood that was on the you know doorpost and it was sprayed up there. Francis Schaeffer, he paralleled the scarlet rope to the blood of the Passover lamb. He said, when the children of Israel were about to leave Egypt, they were given the blood of the Passover under which to be safe. When the people were about to enter the land, they were met by a different... Um, but parallel sign, a red cord hanging from the window of a believer. It's like this city's going down, but guess what? There's a believer there. There's a believer there. There's someone who believes. Who is that person? This is Rahab. Let's tell you the story about her conversion. She believed. Everybody, all right, her family's safe too, but just think about it. Everybody in the city crushed and the, you know, perishing. That's the word used in Hebrews eleven thirty one. She didn't perish. Think of John three sixteen. If you believe, you won't perish. Everybody perishes. Everybody's destroyed, and the dust is settling. And Rahab and the family are saved alive somehow. Somehow, God preserves the structural integrity of that unit, and they're alive. And everything else is crushed. I don't want to over spiritualize when we had our earthquake and. We had just minimal damage to no damage here. It's amazing in this building, this facility. Everything's just moving around like this. And we have a little bit of sheetrock damage or something, maybe. I mean, it was amazing. The Lord is good. I mean, that could have been so bad. And God protected this facility, but it's an illustration of him protecting Rahab because she believed. Again, pagan culture. So what do we do with her? And she probably didn't have a conscious contradiction even in her heart, but with what she did. Well, I did a little research and thinking on this, listened to a seminar on this, and a professor basically gave three different views for what Rahab um, could be doing and how we understand this. The first view is called, and you can write it down, it'll be online in the notes, but it's called the hierarchy of absolutes. What we're talking about here is the idea that you have you have two truths. You know, one is you, you try to keep spies alive, and the other is don't tell a lie. 
right? Two, two ideas. You want to you save lives and you, you don't want to tell a lie, a lie. And so one truth trumps the, the other truth. It's, it's uh, you're doing something for the greater good. So you are exempt from the guilt or penalty of lying because you're saving life. That's one argument. That's, that's the argument a lot of people think. You just sort of say, man, this one cancels, one thing cancels the other thing. That's the hierarchy of absolutes. The other is non-conflicting absolutes. And that is where you say, no, you have two parallel truths and you're supposed to obey both of them in all circumstances. It's one truth does not cancel out the other truth. It's a command from the Decalogue and you're speaking truth. And so you never lie under any circumstance. You never deceive. You never tell something partially true in any circumstance. Well, I think we can make the case that uh, the second option is the clearest option in terms of what the Bible teaches. It, It says that you're not supposed to lie. So you don't lie. You don't lie. But then there's a third option. And I think this is an interesting one. It sort of puts Rahab in a unique context. And it's what I would call the unique um, situation that certain people are in where it is a permissible thing to understand that the enemy has forfeited their right to be told the truth. What do I mean by that? Well, these are wartime dynamic scenarios. They're unique ones. And I don't share this with you so that you'll use that and then let yourself out of telling the truth when we're supposed to always be telling the truth. This can creep into your conscience. But there are wartime dynamics where an enemy of God has forfeited their right to the truth. Rahab in a wartime environment, she is defecting from the pagan satanic culture and going to God's special covenant people. So that defection warrants a wartime response in the midst of an, of an enemy that's against God. This would be similar to the midwives in Exodus 1 we talked about a few weeks ago when you had the, the new baby boys that were being born of the Hebrew um, the Hebrew people and Pharaoh, God's enemy, said, cast these Hebrew babies into the, the Nile. Well, the midwives somehow were believing God and were on God's side as Egyptian midwives, and they were protecting these Hebrew boys. And so when the soldiers came and Pharaoh is asking, what happened to these Hebrew boys that are escaping execution? And they said, well, we can't get to them in time. We can't get to them in time. You know, the Hebrew women are strong. And so the babies are, are just being born and we can't show up. So we have no idea what's happening. Well, that's a whole, that's a lie that they were lying, but they were doing it against God's enemy. I say, how do we make this practical? Well, um, perhaps, perhaps a police officer. And I heard this scenario as well in the lecture. Um, the professor knew a police officer who had shown up to a scene. It was a person who was um, waving a knife around and threatening people around an apartment building, but had sheathed the knife. But, but at that point, not threatening, but was known as a threat. So the police officer said to the, the person, uh, and he didn't feel like he could leave that person just standing there. Um, and he said, listen, if you don't drop the knife and you know, lay it on the ground, I'm going to shoot you. Well, at that point, the police officer has protocols that, you know, he really wasn't saying actually what he knew he was going to do. So was he permitted to do that or not? 
Well, the person ended up dropping the knife and he put him in cuffs and arrested him and took him, took him there. It's a wartime dynamic. The rules sometimes are different. And I haven't been in that situation, but I can understand it. It would be like a, you know, a hostage situation where the, you know, the person has the hostages and you're part of the FBI and you're the negotiator. And they say, well, if you give me a helicopter, then I'll release the hostage. And the negotiator who's a Christian would say, well, okay, um, can we get a helicopter? And they say, no, we can't get a helicopter. He goes back and says, the helicopter's on the way. And while he's doing that, SWAT is circling the building to go in. Those are unique circumstances and wartime circumstances. What are some other examples in the Bible where things get a little interesting? Well, what about David's imprecatory prayers? I mean, this is our psalm book, right? This is how we're supposed to sing and pray. But there are prayers where David is saying, you know, wrath, judgment, and even God's hatred, you know, against you. But he's saying it on behalf of God to God's enemies, as king. Well, he is the king in that situation. So it's different than how we are to respond as people following Christ's teaching. It says, love our enemies and pray for those that persecute us. So, you know, understanding what we're supposed to do in light of David is unique. What about when the apostles by the Sanhedrin were, were you know, carted in and they said, don't preach the gospel anymore. And they said, listen, we're going to obey God rather than man. We're sorry, you know, well, is that hierarchical, you know, because they were supposed to submit to governing authorities, but they were on a wartime mission. I would think that would be a unique um, thing to do, but there is a time where we have to consider the complexity of why we do what we do. Remember, Peter drew the sword in Gethsemane, you know, to protect Jesus's life. You say, well, wasn't that right? And Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. It's time to submit. What about, you know, in terms of paying taxes to God or man and, you know, render to Caesar what Caesar and God's what is God. So it's not always easy to exactly discern how things are playing out in these scenarios, but you have to think about it carefully. And I think ultimately, if it's between Rahab was a new convert and so she was not clear in terms of exactly what she was doing, I don't think that's actually true to Joshua too. I think it was a wartime dynamic. And I think her expression of saving the spies alive was a wartime tactic that was an act of faith, very similar to the midwives um, who were sparing the Hebrew babies. I think it was wartime defection. But let me say this, Rahab's actions should not be our example for how we build our practical living in Christian life and theology. We have to understand her circumstance was unique. Hopefully that was helpful. I guess I took a long time doing that. Um, What's amazing is where this leads. I can't help but just um, end in Matthew 1. If you look at Matthew 1, the genealogy, Rahab's in that. Where did her faith lead her? Well, she became an Israelite. She married an Israelite prince in the lineage. It, it shows that that Nashon, um, verse 4 of Matthew 1, it says, Nashon, the father of Solomon, and Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. David, who's the forerunner of Christ. So what you have is an Amorite prostitute who becomes a believer, marries a prince of Judah, 
because Nashan was a prince. And then there's a line from that through Solomon, the father of Boaz by, by Rahab. So Rahab then marries Solomon and you have Boaz who meets Ruth. And we know the story there. And that's all pointing to Christ, this bloodline. We're all saved by the atoning blood of Christ. And we're all joined together within Christ's bloodline. How is that manifest? Just give me 10 more seconds. Just think for a second. How are we like Rahab? How are we like these children of Israel circling Jericho? What are you facing? Just think for a second. What are you facing? What is God doing in your life where he's saying, be weak, be foolish, be like Rahab, risk in faith through humility. Remember all the Paul stuff I brought up at the first Corinthians, second Corinthians, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That's what brings strength. It's what brings Christ's power to the scene. Let's live in weakness, live in foolishness for God.